Uh, I've said this uh, before on um, each of the podcasts, and never is it more true than today. Uh, I love these because I get to chat with some of my favourite folk artists. And I'm joined by, or dare I say, the pride of Aberdeen. Uh, and I say that because it was also, and I'm sure you're sick of hearing that, Iona, but it was also one of the very first songs I heard of yours that made me fall in love with your music, which must seem like a decades ago, but was only probably about four years ago. But Iona, I'm delighted that you can, you can be here. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I've been seeing online. I'm like, yeah, absolutely. Sounds, sounds great. Cool podcast. So, so cool. How many times have you been introduced as the Pride of Aberdeen? Actually, not that many, which is quite okay. funny. Um, <laughs> I, I felt think, like I was being a bit predictable then. No, no, no. I think it's because um, when I released that first little EP, I really hadn't toured that much. So like um, a lot of the like singing festivals and sing arounds and kind of communities of practice didn't actually kind of uh, listen to that EP or like know it existed because um, I didn't really market it as much as like the you know things that have came before so I think I think that like it was released but no one really listened to it so they don't actually I don't I feel like people haven't really heard that which is totally fine by me because it's I mean when I listen to it and I'm like that sounds that sounds so juvenile on it um, and which I'm, bits what the lyrics or your voice or what certainly not the lyrics because those are ballads and they're you know timeless timeless songs like Kieran Amount and all that probably my writing of Pride of Aberdeen was quite juvenile and um, but my voice certainly you know I was 18 I think my voice has changed since then I've had my tonsils out I've done lots of technical work with my voice so I sound uh, not completely different but I sound different and I, I just don't listen to that thing I just, I just don't listen to it at gigs I'm always like oh here's the new album and here's the new EP but don't get this one because it's rubbish <laughs> you know I'm, I'm really bad at, at doing that but it just it feels like a total lifetime ago and of course the people that I've worked with like through uni or whatever is kind of changed and molded you know I don't really um, work with pipes so much anymore I'd rather mandolin type you know, I think I was just in a formative period of time where that was a test the water thing and I'm more kind of convinced of what I'd like to sound like now. So I feel like it was a cool little nice first EP and it was re-released on a German label. So it was picked up, which was nice, but it's definitely like not what I associate, not what I associate myself with, but I think it's just like that was the prototype of what I was maybe away to do. Um, yeah. Well, of course, you're entitled to your opinion. I mean, it's wrong, but you're, you're more than entitled to that. The way I see it is that it's part of shapes of who you are now. And I think I, I understand what you're saying. Of course, I'm being flippant. But it's, um, I think it's because it's part of the artist you are now. It's, it's part of your story. And I think it stands out as today in its own right compared to the albums of the, and the EPs of the last year or two as well. Uh, so I think it, it's beautiful. Now, I forget one thing it does raise me because it's based on a, on a ballad and I forget the writer of the ballad but because it's um, your interpretation your lyrics and your music as you've got a little bit older had you rewritten that ballad would you write it differently because you're four years more experienced do you think um i'm not quite sure because i think it was from ord's bothy songs and ballads um which is a collection of bothy songs and ballads and i think it was called ellen of aberdeen and I think I just stuck to it because it had like a voice in place. And I think when I rewrote it, I rewrote it with so many like floating lines and stock phrases that really, it was from the tradition and I just put a little bit of me into it. 
But I think I would probably use less like typical lines now, you know, to describe how she looked. You know what? I actually can't remember how this song goes. It's been so long. <laughs> Um, I will uh, I will add it to the Behind the Folk playlist. So if anyone wants to listen to it, of course, they can go to your uh, Spotify, but I'll, I'll put it on there. But I haven't even done the proper introduction for you, which I was going to do, so I'm going to do it now. I am, um, by uh, all intents and purposes, um, joined by folk royalty. Um, I, uh, I would go as far as saying, for, for a number of reasons. You've been incredibly successful um, in the few years that you've been writing. You are a stalwart of traditional Scottish folk music, but I can't help but feel when I listen to you that there's a warm modern feeling to it as well. That is a kind of reassurance that the tradition of folk, Scottish folk music is in safe hands because you're performing some wonderful stories and ballads in, an, in a very unique way, but you were also bringing a, a, a kind of a modern up-to-date feel to your music as well there's a wonderful kind of juxtaposition that you put yourself in of that tradition and you but you know since my epiphany of folk music which was born in Scotland about 12 years ago and I've been a big fan of the traditional storytelling side of Scottish folk music and and the ballads uh, I you know you have a, a wonderful unique style so I that's why I feel I'm joined by folk royalty today Oh, I don't, I really, I think, when I think of folk royalty, I think of um, source singers. I think of people like Sheila Stewart and Jeannie Robertson and Stanley Robertson and Elizabeth Stewart and like the people that kind of kept the singing going at a time where it was maybe threatened. And I think of those people as folk royalty. And I guess down in England, um, people would say like Martin Carthy and Norma Watterson and all that. And it just depends on where you come from and what, what you think of. But when I think of folk royalty, I think of those, those people as stalwarts. Because um, I'm 22, you know, I, I feel very young um, in terms of the grand scheme of things. Because when you're a folk singer, you're young from like age 10 to 50. So I feel like I'm like somewhere in the middle. Um, but saying that, I have sung since I was really, really young and was exposed to, you know, the tradition um, through ballad competitions or sing-arounds, folk clubs, folk festivals. And it's probably all those really, really great singers who inspired me, um, but also who I got to listen to firsthand. And other people, maybe not from my area, had only heard those people in archive recordings or in, you know, collections or whatever. I had the privilege of, like, hearing them. Um, people who are still alive, um, just great, great singers. So I think it's probably the community of practice that I feel is the royalty, um, which I've really had the privilege of tapping into, which is nice. Well, like a royal family, the mantle needs to be carried on. So that's where uh, that's certainly where I see you. And I think you mentioned um, about them being so prevalent because they were writing and recording at a time when folk music was under threat. And how do you see folk music now then, if it was under threat then? Well, I think it was a really, in terms of the archive music that I'm listening to, it was at a time where um, the Northeast in particular was being not discovered and not rediscovered, but was um, being highlighted as like one of the hotbeds of traditional balladry. So we had collectors coming over um, from America, like Goldstein and Lomax and James Madison Carpenter. And we also had collectors from the region. So it was, it was when like they were discovering these folk singers and thinking we need to archive this quick um, because they understood the cultural significance. So that's quite different as to what I feel like it is now. Like if it wasn't for some of those collectors, then a lot of those singers would have never been found um, or archived. And then I wouldn't be able to sing those songs because those singers wouldn't be in the collections. But right now, I think 
folk music is quite different in the fact that it's certainly not under threat. Um, and now folk music is not teetering on the mainstream because folk music was never necessarily in the mainstream. Years and years ago, after The Tonight Show was on TV, there was like a folk song a day. Um, Jimmy McGregor and Robin Hall would do like a kind of song each night after the news, national news, it wasn't just in Scotland. So they were singing to like millions of people and um, people thought they were like the first stars of folk music, you know, even before like the Corries and all that. But for me, I was, I probably listened to less commercial um, music, um, but folk music now is almost teetering in the mainstream in the fact that, you know, a trad band called Bioga recorded with Ed Sheeran. I mean, there's more and more links going on there. Um, over in, I just saw like a video of some of the great bluegrass musicians on the same stage as Dolly Parton. Like there's more cohesiveness between different genres and people of different, you know, backgrounds. And I'm not just talking like, oh, we're mainstream because we're collaborating with celebrities. It's not like that. It's more like folk music has maybe become a little bit more cool in the last wee while. Um, when you look at some festivals, I mean, I certainly, I don't like this big stompy, that's not my kind of music that I do. I'd rather it be like a sit down, listen to the storytelling, listen to the narrative, listen to what I'm saying. But there's some great bands that I would absolutely go and have a dance to and have like eight gins listen to. Whereas I feel like maybe years and years ago, there wouldn't be that, not party aspect to it, but party aspect to it. <laughs> so folk music's so healthy right now. And there's so many organizations that are working with each other to create opportunities for people to collaborate a big issue with me is that I feel like a lot of Scots get to go to England and tour, but we don't necessarily have enough great English folk singers coming up here to tour. I'd love to see um, more of Sam Kelly touring in, in Scotland because I think his music is absolutely class. Um, so I feel like there's a little bit of a divide, like we kind of get accepted down there a bit, but we don't book enough um, really great English folk singers and folk musicians up here. So I think that's Sorry, I'm going off on a tangent. That's <clears throat> you can go off on a tangent as much as you like, but why do you think that is? I don't know. Okay. I, I, I would hate that it was about, you know, politics or if it was about, you know, ingrained stigma. I, would, I hate that. I hate that that's a thing. We do get some English folk musicians like Pete Coe. He comes up to Scotland a lot. It gets really, really good. Um, you know, the Wilson family, absolutely, you know, singing, singing tradition type things. Like there's a lot of singing festivals that just have everyone. doesn't matter where you're from, everyone. But in terms of the general touring circuit, I'd love to see more um, English folk musicians coming up. I mean, I was reading an article in The Living Tradition and it was about uh, a, sing a multi-instrumentalist and singer. She's great. She's called Georgia Lewis. And, um, you know, she had all these accolades and awards and everything. And, um, you know, she was asked, what's your dream? And she said, oh, I really want to play at Celtic Connections in Glasgow. And I just thought, why has that not happened already? She's such a great musician. Like, I think that we just need a little bit more cohesiveness and willing to explore um, the traditions of both because they're really similar. And a friend's band, um, it's called The Tweed Project, does that, um, which is really cool. But we don't just want one project to do it. We, want set, we, we just want our touring circuit to be more cohesive so we can have... Um, more English um, musicians coming up here and making a good go at the touring circuit because I certainly you know do a lot of work down in England and I absolutely love it totally love it the singing tradition is so great you know folk clubs everyone sings and when you say you're from Huntley they go ah oh, I know Bogie's Bonnie Bell that's a great ballad and it might be because um, you know Martin Carthy sung it or Nick Jones has sung it or whatever you know historically there's a lot of crossover like the source singers I was talking about previously like the Stuarts of Blair and the Robertsons and all that 
they went down to England and uh, went to heaps of folk clubs down there and therefore the songs got disseminated. So there is a bit of a link um, between the songs and the repertoire and I think we should just have more touring going on. It sounds great. And, and I'm with you, by the way. I'm a big fan of the, the ballads. I think that's what draws me to your music and sound as well. It's, it's real storytelling music, but uh, it's on my list one day to, to come to a, a Cayley north of the border and have a true foot stomping folk party at some point too. Um, that hasn't happened yet, but it's got to. Yeah, I mean, there's some great festivals that are just so up in your feet. And it's not like you're like typical Cayley dancing. It's like, you know, bands like Nightworks and Elephant Sessions. It's like they're not electronic well they're yeah they're mixing in different kind of things you could go to it, it wouldn't be out of place in a nightclub you know it's kind of cool i like that i like that times have changed right we've got 10 questions to get to and you're going to give us a a, a couple of vocal performances too which i'm really looking forward to uh, and we'll talk also about baltic street which you released during the lockdown too but um firstly how has lockdown been for you it's been really strange like i was supposed to be in australia and denmark and Sweden, Germany, I supposed to be in America for the first time, um, apart from a showcase that I did. So there was all these like important opportunities lined up for this year. This is my first year not being a student. So um, this is quite an important juncture in my career, going from uh, musician and student to just musician. And lockdown has pretty much put an end to all of that. And I really struggled with it at the beginning because I was like, right, what now? Because I, I don't know, you know, being away from all the musicians that I collaborated with, I was like, what? what can I do myself? I, I feel like the past few years I became so reliant on other guitarists or musicians that I hadn't really picked up the piano for so long. Um, so lockdown has been a bit of a learning curve, you know, editing videos and self-recording and self-taping and self-accompanying because I really don't do that live. I don't play piano live because it's really, it's not comfortable. I'd rather just focus on the singing. I feel like piano is a bit of a fourth wall for me because I'm always looking down making sure I don't make a mistake. So lockdown has kind of forced me to do a little bit more. Um, I started a Patreon, which was cool. Did some live streams, which is also cool. I've done some random bits and bobs, some writing, working um, voluntarily with a new Scots language campaign to get it, you know, get the language uh, legally recognised in Parliament. So that's something that I wouldn't have done if I didn't have the time done lots lots of stuff i was up filming for a new tv show a few days ago it's going to go out next year um and they're talking about uh about basically poetry and scott song and scottish stuff so lots of opportunities in place of of nothing so it's nice are you planning on doing some more recordings in um the scottish traditional language um yeah i was just thinking about this last night because i was like I really like country music, I really like bluegrass music, really like old time music and ultimately I'd like to do more in English which is similar to the Dark Turn of Minds EP but then I was thinking you know I know so well it's not like I know so much about it but I'm so consolidating what I have sung all my life that maybe I think I will do more in the Scots language because I think it's culturally important. I don't want to be a folk singer who um does things in Scots language and really heralds that tradition and then just randomly leaves it because I like other music. I think I'll do it both at the same time. Maybe not in the same release. Maybe, I, I don't know. It's, it's so difficult because I love some of these songs. I love singing Scots and everywhere, no matter what country you're in, they, you still can explain to them, you know, music transcends language, um, which is cool. But yeah, I think I'll do bits and bobs 
I don't want to only sing in Scots and in Doric because I feel like singing English is also quite nice. I really enjoy that. It's a bit of a break, but I don't know. It's almost like there's two paths, but really there doesn't need to be two paths. No, I don't think so. And you certainly don't need to decide on this call. I should throw in an apology, by the way, to you and anyone listening for the knocking at the door. There's no way I could say to Amazon, please don't deliver what I'm talking to Iona Fife, but um, they did. So uh, there you go. So if it was in the background, I apologize. Right. 10 questions to go through that are taken from the end of Inside the Actors Studio, which uh, helps to understand a, a little bit more about the mind behind the writing. Have you had a look at the questions already or are this going to be off the cuff? I'm looking at them right now. Okay, yeah. good. I like it. It's going to be instinctive then. Yeah. So let's start with what uh, the first one, which is what is your favourite word? And it can be in any language. Yes, scunnered. S-C-U-N-N-E-R-T or D at the end, depends where you're from. It just means fed up, like hacked off, fed up, fatigued of life, scunnered. So would it be a word that you would just kind of shout out or would it be part of a sentence saying, I'm scunnered? Would it just yeah. be kind of, oh, scunnered because it, it shows that you're hacked off or? No, I, I would be like, oh, I'm so scunnered. Mm. Or like, oh, I'm really scunnered of that. Or I'm really scunnered of them or whatever. You know, it would just, you would have I'm. Yeah. And what is it you like about the word? I think it's just like the, I don't know. I feel like there's not an English equivalent in one word. Like, I feel like it's like quite unique to Scots, um, like Scunner. It just maybe the not onomatic peak. Not it's not like it's like that. It's just like a good word, like good describing word of your feelings and emotions. And even in two words, Scunner sounds a lot better than hacked off. I think yeah. it's safe to say. I think I might adopt it as part of my language too. What's your least favourite word? I don't know. I don't have a least favourite word. There's words that I don't use as much. Uh, I really don't know what's what's uh, what makes a least favorite word. What makes a favorite word? I mean, it could be the way it sounds, so or it could be the meaning behind it. So, speaking to a couple of previous episodes, um, Shaw Boydson in Wales, he his least favorite word was Trump. I think for fairly obvious reasons. Um, uh, although I don't know if he's popular in Aberdeen or not, so I still I'm still never sure which side. Um, Aberdeen uh, folk feel about yeah I don't think he is I really isn't there's a documentary that you should all watch it's heartbreaking it's on I found it on Facebook actually but it'll be elsewhere and it's about an, an elderly couple who had lived on a farm all of their existence um and the farm was like in an area where Trump wanted to clear for his golf course and they refused to be bought out they refused to move because like they had farmed on that land or they'd been on that land for like several generations they were like mm. yeah we're not moving and it's really heartbreaking. I think there was some, the way that the documentary was, was putting it was that um, water pipeline was compromised and these two elderly people literally had to like, they couldn't wash themselves properly because they didn't have running water into their, um, where they were living for quite a number of years. And it was, it was so heartbreaking. Like just the disregard for human nature, like, get you know get off this land i'm making a golf course like really shocking documentary person went to the whatever it was and the police was called after them um it's you can see it online but they have subtitles because the the two elderly cut the couple they're like talking in like broad broad doric so it had to be fully subtitled it's you know it's just heartbreaking so yeah, yeah. i think a lot of people 
a lot of people are not too too happy in Aberdeen. But yeah, I think I don't know. I don't. And like then Finley Napier, he chose the word creative because he didn't like it as a noun. He didn't mind it as a verb, but he didn't like being called a creative. Um, so yeah. I guess you know, there's a couple of quite different um, different types of of words. I don't like the word content, <laughs> but, um, but yeah. So it's. It's, yeah, so there's no reason for a disliked word. But if there was, if you had to, to pin your mask to one word in particular, what would it be? I really hate the word slang. I hate it. I just There you go. It. Yeah, the fact when anything Scottish comes up on TV or like Outlander or like Twitter, people call it Scottish slang instead of language because it's not slang. It's how people work. Like it's how people like talk. So I hate the word slang. Yeah, that can yeah. get in the end. Fair enough. I didn't think we'd have to push you too far to uh, to find the word. <laughs> what turns you on? Um, I don't really know. Like probably um, good, good crack, good songs, good just like uh, an evening of yeah. In terms of uh, like as a person, I feel really enthused and happy and just like at my most vibrant when like there's good music, good people, good you know, good drinks, good food. Like we're you know like a not a flat party, but like imagine if we're outside having some tunes, um, having a drink, having a barbecue, like that in terms of like what, you know, that would turn me on as like a, a person and make me feel really happy and like, yeah, make me thrive within that. You know, and maybe it's just because it, it's been locked down and I have been yearning after that, like just like a good night of, of crack, drinking, tunes. Um, so I think that's probably where I'm at right now. Right. If you asked me this like four months ago, I'd have been like, just sitting in my room watching Netflix and um, not having to leave, like being able to like just have a night off in my own room, in my own bed, in my own, like that would have been what I would have been yearning after and what would have made me happy and thrive. But now it's quite the opposite. So COVID aside, what, what, when you're actually singing yourself, what position do, do you prefer to be on a stage in like a, like, like Celtic Connections when you perform there in a big theatre? Do you prefer a, a kind of a smaller folk clubs you prefer actually you love singing but you prefer to be in a recording studio where's your preference Mm -hmm. I think it depends on the context that you're singing for so like I like intimate audiences where everyone sings and everyone you know it's it's like very intimate but in a context of like maybe launching an album maybe getting it recorded like I really like the kind of big room uh nice sound nice lighting a show perhaps but it depends where I'm coming from because then I, I don't really like smoking mirrors. I like it to be really intimate. So it, it just depends. But in terms of recording studios, I absolutely hate them. I like just, just hate them. Recording my first album was just absolutely, I hated it. Like I hated the minute I stepped in at the recording studio uh, until I got out of it. Whereas the EP, Dark Turn of Mind, I did that in um, Graham Rory's flat in Glasgow. And it was just so much less stressful. Even though it was, you know, the flat was turned into, you know, effectively a vocal recording booth. It just felt different psychologically. Um, I didn't feel that panic of, okay, let's get this done. I'm hemorrhaging money. Like, let's, let's do this. It was more like chilled out. I'm in a nice, big, cold tenement flat. Um, so yeah, hate recording studios. Why? I really like, why? Why? Because mm, yeah. I think that fear of like, get this right. This is where something's going to be made. Um, you're creating, your output needs to be of a high standard, blah, 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 blah. Whereas maybe if you're recording in another location, there's not that like 
stress, even though there is, it's very, it's in my head, it's all psychological. But I really like the whole like round robin type things that happen at like some festivals where like we've got like five singers and you all sit in a line, you get a crack and then one person stands up to sing then the next person, the next person, the next person and you change what you're going to sing based on the ballads and the songs that they've sung. But that only happens at like kind of really traddy, singy festivals. I do like a, a gig where it's like a typical, like there's a support and then there's a main. and I, I like that too. Really, it depends on context really, but categorically, I hate recording studios. So it doesn't really matter what the, how you dress the recording studio, how relaxed you make it. It's purely psychological then. So I, I couldn't do anything to recording studio to, to put you more at ease. Uh, I, I don't think so. Um, I think it's just the whole psychological, this is a recording studio and I'm entering this place doesn't matter what studio because like I was recording a few different ones and I just get the same anxious feeling whereas if I just go you know we went up to Graham's flat and it was just so much you know set and chill out and then get this done you know it's more the recording studio you know it's there's a time limit you can't just be in it all day you know and, and get things done whereas whereas I guess like coming from it in like project manager mode like if you're less stressed out about getting it done in a time and you've got maybe a little bit more leeway because it's in someone's makeshift flat and you know you're not like stressed about like I need to get this done because I can't afford another like three days in here you know you're probably going to sing better because you're less stressed and you're less constricted around your your vocal anatomy so yeah I think it's it's just that whereas if I was like Taylor Swift and I could just record for like weeks on end in any great studio that I wanted because you know money 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 I'd probably be more like yeah this is fun cool, let's do it. Let's just hang out and have a coffee. Yeah. So it, it definitely comes from a place of being an independent musician as well and knowing that they're so expensive. And, yeah. yeah. What turns you off? Um, the folk police, probably. Um, yeah, certainly. I mean, growing up, I was always like exposed, like really traditional singing and that's, I got a grasp on it, understood that that's kind of what they were looking for in the ballad competitions, like the rawest form of singing. And as I was probably moved to Glasgow, went to conservatoire, started working with instruments and music, I was so stressed about who I was pissing off or who I was upsetting or who was I upsetting? Why was I recording? It was for me, it wasn't for anyone else. I wasn't trying to like, you know, that's what I know now. But at the time, every decision, I was like, what will people think? What are they going to think? Not in a terms of marketing review way, in a terms of what's that tradition bearer going to think if they hear me singing this, if they hear me singing in this tone or with, with, a, with this instrument. Um, but yeah, now I just don't really care. If you like it, you like it. If you don't, you don't. But I'm just going to make music that I like and I can defend. Because if I make music um, with other people, the folk police in mind, then I've not made the decisions on my own volition. Whereas now I can be like, right, I made it, I defended it, I've done this for me. If you don't like it, you don't like it. So yeah, I don't like the folk police. I can't deal with it. Um, that gives me the absolute stress. But then saying that when I was really young, I think I was the folk police because I was conditioned into thinking that, you know, sing it unaccompanied, get it unaccompanied down first, then you can add whatever you want in, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like I was not conditioned, but I was brought up with that very, very traditional singing style that everything else I thought, oh, that's really contemporary. But I've changed, you know, and now I'm really liberal being like anything goes. It's all good. So what changed you? Because you said yourself, you've only been a year out of university. So where did that kind of more liberal feeling towards folk music come from? Um, when I probably went to university and we had a lot of lectures on, you know, experimentation, innovation versus tradition and the fact that you can have both. Um, 
but there was a huge learning curve being like this is you know this is where folk music came from and if we don't allow it to grow and ebb and flow and be part of this continuum the carrying stream then it's going to be stuck in one point of time whereas folk music is like continu continually changing people are doing really cool things with it all the time and those same people that are doing cool things with it can also um, apply it in a really traditional context they can do both so in that in my own mind I was like okay well if I can do this song unaccompanied and make a good job of it then I can probably do that with a band as well and make a good job of it too and if I know what I've changed and I know where I got the song and what the song's about and really the context of it and I know how to interpret it in both ways then that's good um but before I didn't really I didn't think of that I, I just was more wanting to make it as chaddy as possible to make sure that I didn't upset anyone. Uh, I also did the Phase Ross Kelly Trail and that was my first experience of working in a band and that was literally five years ago and a lot has happened in five years but um, it was like I just left school and then I was away to the conservatoire and then that summer it was like a you do like five weeks of a tour and it's it was really cool and they're celebrating Phase Ross as the organisation and they're celebrating 21 years of the Cayley Trail this year. So they're doing an online gig on the, what, like next week or something. And all of the previous, you know, some of the previous Cayley Trail participants uh, were asked to do a gig, AKA make a video and send it in. Um, so it's really cool. Cayley Trail definitely allowed me to play with musicians who came from different parts of the tradition. And I realized that actually everyone didn't grow up within a tradition and we're coming, at, we're coming from different parts. So we should probably just chill out and innovate and do something cool i i surprise i mean i understand that all the points you make about the the folk police but at the same time you know a lot of your music is has a very modern feel to it which is you know wonderful stories from your own experiences and visions of the world but you bring some a lot of the traditions of folk scottish folk music with you so i would have thought even the folk police would applaud that wouldn't they because without with that being brought through, then the traditional folk music would be left in the past and that would be, that'd be awful. Yeah, I don't know. I think maybe in, in like my repertoire, I do such traditional material that um, I'm in favour, hopefully, hopefully with the folk police, whoever they are. <laughs> um, but yeah, there, there's always going to be people that are criticising you because to some I'm too traditional and to some I'm too modern. I'm like, well, I don't really know. Like, I can't please everyone. And that realisation that you can't please everyone because they've all got different styles is like really, really nice. Um, that you just accept that not everyone's going to be happy. But saying that, I really, really am still fond of the whole traditional thing because... Well, when I say the traditional thing, I mean like unaccompanied ballad singing because I think that, that if you can sing a song or sing a ballad unaccompanied and get it over and tell the story and really consolidate that interpretation then you can start to maybe doing some cool things with it, whether that be, you know, adding a few instruments or even maybe do electronic music with it. I don't tend to do electronic music because I don't know how to work a computer, but other people have, and that's cool. But um, yeah, I still definitely do the whole unaccompanied ballad things. I go back to the ballad competitions and I still sing in them because uh, I think it's important because you get to hear other people's repertoire too. Um, only recently, the National Library of Congress, the American Folklife Centre, asked me to... Um, give them a 30 minute show basically of kind of what I do and I picked some songs out of the James Madison Carpenter collection and he was a collector who came to the UK he did heaps in England and Scotland 
but he was really drawn to the northeast of Scotland because previous collectors had collected there. But he found singers that were previously not recorded, and he recorded them um, with you know wax cylinder, and he typed. He was very like he, he was very not anal about it, but he you know typed it all up and made it all really cool. And only two years ago did the Vaughan Williams Memorial Library publish it. But it was a kind of joint effort um, between uh, the Library of Congress, Aberdeen University and EFDSS, Cecil Sharp House, I think. So it was a huge, huge undertaking. There's like thousands of recordings. And they asked me, as someone from Aberdeenshire, could, you know, maybe have a look at this collection and do a few songs from it. So it was just really nice that, you know, folklorists and ethnomusicologists of that calibre asked me to do that and they wanted to, you know, because the gig will be archived on the Library of Congress YouTube and their the American Folklife website and all that. And that's a really nice thing that, you know, people think that I'm culturally significant in that way to have it archived. So I'm, that really, really was nice. To, what, to uh, what an incredible honour, but only just goes to underpin the royalty comment I made before. Um, <laughs> we're going to um, uh, hear uh, 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 an unaccompanied ballad from you shortly. But before I do, uh, what is your favourite curse word? Curse word, uh, probably shite, because I feel like it's such a Scottish thing. Um, Definitely Scotland, been adopted amongst the um, English lexicon as well, I'd say. Yeah, I feel like sweet. Like actually, one of my friends was involved in a TV show about Scots language and Scottish swearing, and like basically how you know it's literally on BBC iPlayer. It's very intriguing, and they were investigating the relationship between Scots and swearing. And it's really, really interesting. But I feel like we use swear words quite affectionately. Um, you know, you, you might have really annoyed someone if they're going to use a swear word not affectionately. But I feel like a lot of Scots use it to describe someone with affection, which is very, very odd. And like in other traditions and cultures and um, countries, they don't quite get that when we're and we're, we're doing it, but yeah, certainly. I love the notion, I love the notion of someone calling me a fuckwit and doing it in an affectionate way. I don't know why it sounds, yeah. <laughs> it sounds very, yeah, I like it. Now Now I know when that happens, should it happen, that uh, it's a term of endearment. Depends where you're, where you are. Depends what you're in. But um, but yeah, no, I think that's a that's a good one. But yeah, Sweden and Scotland, it's quite it's been researched quite a lot. I'm going to look that on the BBC iPlayer. I also I, I did mention it in your last answer, but I love the idea of when you mentioned the folk police. I, I have this notion of a group of people sat around a room, um, you know, the the folk mafia kind of discussing who's on their their metaphorical hit list, um, which uh, <laughs> I'm sure you're not on. Um, so um, for the first time, uh, we are going to have an unaccompanied uh, ballad from you. Um, so, uh, which is brilliant. I'm, I'm quite excited by this. Um, so can you tell us a bit about which ballad you're going to sing or which song you're going to sing and, uh, and why? Or, or a bit about it? Yeah, okay. I think I'll do this one. Um, this is called Captain Carr or Eden of Gordon and it is about, I do know what it's about, it's real. This is like based on real life. Um, Adam Gordon Eden Gordon got like his second, you know, sidekick to go and burn down um, the Corgarth Castle, Towie House. Um, and it was like a clan thing in the northeast of Scotland. The Gordons pretty much just pillaged everywhere. Like they were the, 
the family in power and they were quite like close-knit with the, the royal court um, and basically they go to siege Kurgarth Castle or House of Towie and uh, burn it down with heaps and heaps of people inside so it's a bit brutal um, but the reason is Edom Gordon was the guy that gave the orders and then it was this um, guy Carr who went in and actually did the burning down so a lot of uh, versions had, call it Captain Carr because he was the actual person that did the did the burning, but it's quite quite sad. Um, but it, even sadder that it's to do with real life, like it definitely happened, and you can um, go to the site of where it happened in Aberdeenshire, and it's one of those child ballads. Um, and it was also recorded in Francis Gomer's um, English ballads. And his collection is not English ballads. Most of them are Scottish ballads, but I don't know who he was trying to please. Um, but it's very difficult because a lot of these ballads books or these collections are incredibly misleading. Um, what do you mean by child ballad? Child ballad is the... Okay, so uh, Francis James Child was a scholar in Harvard, Massachusetts. And he... Um, was like a, his father was a sailmaker. He wasn't expected to do quite well, but he had an aptitude and he became like the first professor of English at Harvard, I think. Yeah. Um, but he, he never left. He was like an armchair scholar and he got heaps and heaps of people throughout the whole world to like send him manuscripts of ballads and stuff. And he published quite a pioneering collection called Francis James Child, Francis James Child's um, English and Scottish popular ballads. Um, now, 90, there was 305 of them, and 91 out of 305 was from Aberdeenshire alone, like alone. So in that region alone, 91 of them came. And his collection was like the exacting standards to which other folklore works was always like marked off of. Um, he didn't really deal with tunes, uh, he just had the text. So then there was another scholar called Bertrand H. Bronson who did the tune side later on. Um, but this child guy, he never left. He just got everything sent to him. And I just think it's crazy how 91 of them alone was from one region of Scotland. That is that extraordinary. Was, that that is extraordinary. Scotland. Really crazy. So, it, I mean, it consolidated Aberdeenshire as like being the ballad heartland of the English-speaking world. Um, and several different scholars have kind of proved that not many scholars have managed to disprove that um, although I'm sure they've tried but um, that's kind of the crack so growing up in Aberdeenshire is incredibly important uh, to me and I didn't quite realize it until I started getting uh, into the academic side of these songs um, but I realized how important it was to come from there I just thought that everywhere was like that and that everywhere had as many ballads but no so I'll do Eden McGordon I really hope I remember this I haven't sung it in a while but it's a good one um, thank you very much yeah. It fell about the Martin Mass time when the winds blew shell and cold. Cried Edmund Gordon to his men, we mun draw to some halt. Oh, it's hard, oh, it's hard, cried his many men, oh, it hard shall we gain to. It's the Tarry's who sat we man right to see the fair lady. She thought it was her own dear lord that she saw riding him. But it was the tree de Mo Gordon that had me sin or shame. 
Kamdin, kamdin, lady Kambo, he said, he appeared used to me. Or else this nicht I swear I'll burn he in your fearness flee. I wanna give up the lady cried, for leered nor yet for loon, nor yet for any rank robber that comes free off and the lady free the battlements to a bullet she let flee. But it missed its mark we garden, for it scarcely graced his knee. Lady Campbell, the garden cried, that shot will cost you dear. And he has caught his angel to bring the faggots near. I wanna gee up you false garden, I wanna gee up to thee. I wanna forsake my own dear lord. That is so far from me. Then up and spake her youngest son, sat on the newest knee. Oh, open the door, I and let me out, for the reek is choking me. I would gee up my guide, she cried, my cellar and my fee. For at last, oh, the whistling wind, Table of the shriek for me. Then up and spake her daughter dear, she was beef jimp and small. Oh, row me in the pair of sheets, I ain't the row me out the wall. Fade out her in the pair of sheets, I ain't the row her out the wall. But on the pint of the garden sword, she got a deadly fall. Then Gordon turned her out and out, and oh, her face was white. I might have spared that bonny face to be some man's delight. Oh, pity on yon fair castle that was bigot we stain and lime, and we for Lady Campbell herself burned through your fairness nine. Oh, three of them were married wives, and three of them were bairns, and three of them were little maidens that nearly in young men's that that is why I love Scottish folk music. It's a a story uh, in just the, the way that. The Scottish ancestors have wrote the ballads and wrote those stories down and sung in such a, a purely a kind of pure fashion and a wonderful voice um, here in 2020. So thank you for that, Iona. That was truly, truly wonderful. Um, a few more questions to get through. Uh, can we? Can I? Can I trouble you for another ballad before we before we draw a line under this at the end? Yeah, yeah, sure, of course. Yeah. Yes. Right. Okay. A few more to, to get through. Then, what profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Yeah, when I was uh, around fifteen, I mean, I was always told, you know, it's hard to be a musician. You should probably get like a fallback kind of job. Blah 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 blah. Get a proper uh, job. Yeah, and that was quite my own family. Um, so I was always a bit like, always so busy with music all the time, like going to folk clubs, being booked at folk clubs by the time I was like 15. But then I never really realised that I could do it. So I stuck in at school. Like I really, really 
worked hard at school. You know, I come from, you know, a single parent household. We grew up in a council estate. Like it wasn't, it wasn't like an easy um, upbringing, um, just me and my mum. And I think that I had that kind of working class itch of I kind of want to get out of this town. I want to move to the city. I, I, you know, I, I was the first on my dad's side to like go to university. So I really wanted to, I just wanted out, you know, and that really spurred me to work hard. So at school, you know, I did history, you know, modern studies, English. It was always kind of like stuff that interested me. Like I wasn't going to put myself through physics or stuff that I didn't like. like I just wanted to do things that I liked. Um, but when I was 15, uh, I really, really wanted to go into politics, like really did. It was just when uh, 16 year olds were allowed to vote in the Scottish independence referendum. I became very engaged with politics. I just want, uh, yeah, I just wanted to do that. I don't know what um, function I would have been if I went into politics, if I went to uni and studied it, if I would have been like a lobbyist or if I would have sought to be, you know, an actual elected representative. I don't know. But I know that I, I knew that I kind of wanted to do that. That was an option. Um, but then at 16, I realised that, oh, there's a degree. You can do folk music at uni. You can do a degree in traditional music, Scottish singing. I was like, what? No way. So I applied and I got in. Um, and not, you know, there was a lot of people who didn't get in. They only took so many per year. And I thought, well, I really shouldn't give up this opportunity. So I just went. Um, but I feel like as a musician... You can have a nice bit of both. Like it's not, especially as a folk musician as well. Um, I mean, there's been things that I've managed to get involved in politics. I've spoken at, been involved with the union. I'm on the Musicians Union um, Regional Committee of Scotland and Northern Ireland. And they gave me the opportunity to lodge a motion at the Scottish Trade Union Congress um, last year. So that's cool. And then this new thing called Our Vice, which means our voice in English, is... Um, basically a, a cause group or a campaign group who wants to have the Scots language recognised in Parliament with a Scots Language Act, which means that it will be registered as a, like a real language. So like Gaelic is a real language, Welsh is a I real know, language. I'm, when you said this earlier on, I was shocked to think mm. that it wasn't already. Yeah, so um, yes, it's because there is already uh, people... So in, Eng uh, in Scotland, there is English... Uh, Scots and Gaelic and Gaelic is um, very you know people speak it in the west coast as well as in Glasgow and the highlands and it's traditionally more west whereas Scots is traditionally more like the borders speak it the up Fife, Angus, you know Aberdeenshire, Orkney, Shetland it's more of a Germanic language um, I'm not speaking it to you today because the thing is is that it's all about context people who speak Scots are bilingual. They can turn it on and turn it off. If my mum called me right now, I'd be speaking of Rod Doric, but it's all to do with context. I'm not going to stand up at the Scottish Trade Union Congress and speak in a dialect or a language that they don't understand. So, um, yeah, so in Scots, and Doric is just the vernacular of Scots that is in Aberdeen, it's quite unique. Uh, Scots is not recognised as a language, whereas English and Gaelic is. And Gaelic had something called the Gaelic Language Act in 2005. And that was when the parliament recognised it as a real legal language. Um, and they got, that opened doors to funding. It really opened doors um, for the language to thrive. And right now, Scots still doesn't have a language act. And I think it's really sad because people work in the Scots field. Last year, we had something called the Scots Language Awards, where 
people from all over Scotland and several different industries came together and celebrated the language. It was so cool. And, you know, I got gifted uh, Harry Potter in Scots. So you can read the whole Harry Potter in Scots. Um, it's really, really brilliant. You can get Peppa Pig in Scots. You can get the Gruffalo in Scots. And not only can you get the Gruffalo in Scots, but you can get it in almost every regional dialect of Scots. So you can get the Shetland Gruffalo, the Orkney Gruffalo, um, the Doric Gruffalo. It's like a huge industry. And it probably, you know, in terms of publishing and music too, people sing, you know, Scots song, whatever. It's a huge industry, yet it's not recognised as a language. And um, so this organisation I'm involved with, Your Vice, um, I'm their interim communications officer. We, we still need to constitute, so um, it's really early days, but we're hoping to get legislation passed through the Scottish government, which basically says this is a real, real language. Because um, right now we've got kids in primary school who talk Doric or Scots in the playground and then they go into class and they think that they're not allowed to, to talk that in class and they turn to English. When I was in primary school, certainly the teachers didn't like you speaking in Doric or in Scots. There was still a bit of a, hmm, not sure about that. When my dad was in primary school, if you spoke a Doric or Scots word in, in primary school, you'd get like the belt, like you'd get like capital, pun not capital punishment, you just get punished, like physical abuse mm. for talking in that way. So we want this language act to show young kids to be proud of their identity and proud of their, their language, um, as opposed to be shying away from it. Because I think that's really sad. Because if you're, if you're born in a household that speaks Scots and Doric, or whatnot, you should just be able to speak that and not be worried about who you're, you know, who you're talking to. Because certainly Scots and Doric, especially Doric, is like historically known as like the, the farming type working class speak, but it shouldn't be. The more and more people that are um, in big good jobs who are speaking Scots on the job, that's great. I mean, we've got politicians who are in Westminster and they take their oath in Scots so if you're allowed to take your oath in Scots then why is it not a real language yeah like, that makes no sense whatsoever it's mad so that's effectively how I've been able to be involved in the loosest sense in politics but still be a musician but yeah I, I don't know if my life I'm sure I'm sure it will pass through I'd be very surprised if it doesn't but but um I hope it's passed through soon but well done for for playing your part in helping that to inevitably happen um uh, what profession would you not like to do? Anything in an office nine to five. <laughs> like, you're not <laughs> oh. out for it. <laughs> Call centre specifically, I suspect, would be even... Yeah, totally. It would... I don't know, because at the beginning of the lockdown, our industry, you know, we're still not back at work properly. Hmm. There was a lot of people who just don't understand culture. They don't understand musicians. They were saying, oh, but you should just get a job. You should just retrain. You should just get a job in the supermarket. Well, thing is, see if you've been a conservatoire for four years, you've trained in music, you're in huge debt to be a music, you know, or whatnot. You've spent years and years making an album and you tour it and you're successful. And then this happens. I'm not just going to throw it all away and become like a, like, I'm not going to do that. And I think that's totally fine. It's not snobbish. It's just I want to work in the profession that I chose to work in. I don't think I could do a job where I'm on my feet all the time. Uh, I think I'd die. But that's only because I had knee surgery. And like, um, I don't, like, my bones are all, I'm bendy and it's, things dislocate. So that wouldn't be good. But anything like in an office 95 would be my absolute head in where I have to see the same people every day. I just, nah, couldn't do it. 
saying that, um, I think that I could probably work in like marketing or communications. Like I think I could do that. Like there's there's a lot of crossover between promoting you your music and then maybe marketing a brand or marketing like a product. I definitely think that if everything goes to pot, then maybe I could work as like a social media brandy marketing type human. Depends what for. Not as long like, as you're not in the same office with the same people. No, I work from home. <laughs> like, not in the office. No, I just I would don't don't enjoy that. Like I would like to work in like trad arts admin. You know, like culture admin where you're organising things. You know, event maybe event management. Probably not. Nah, I don't know. Because this is my this is my fear of years like the of years like the one we've had, and obviously we don't know specifically when it's going to end and and what life will be like afterwards. But you know, I don't. I know for some artists. A lockdown environment gives people an opportunity to write, but for many artists, it stifles the creativity. Where do you sit on that? Because I, I fear that there's going to we're going to end up with a that we're going to end up with less artists or or you know less new work the longer this goes on. And as a fan, that that's quite worrying. As an artist, it must be more so. But does a does a lockdown hinder or help your creativity? It really depends on what you are, like who you are as an individual person. I know that I'm so unproductive when it comes to anything. Like I really struggle to write. Um, I don't know. I think the lockdown, it really depends. Like there's been, who was it? Who was it now? Rachel Newton recorded and released a whole new album during lockdown. Amazing. Terrific. Absolutely wonderful that she's used this time to create, you know, maybe she started it before. I don't know, but it's out and it sounds great. However, I'm not that, I'm not as together with my life as that. I really, the start of lockdown, I was just in my bed for like uh, two weeks, just in, you know, just super depressed. And like, I think you should probably be honest about that. Like, there's no point being like, yes, I'm creative. I'm going to go sing a few songs, get a new album together. Because that's not how it was. There was, I'm still stressed about like work being cancelled and like finding how to live. I mean, the Musicians Union put out a statistic saying that, at least 19% of musicians are thinking about leaving the sector altogether. Think about how much creative loss that That's is. That's heartbreaking. Who, you know, imagine if one of those musicians went on to create an iconic album that was would go down in history, but they don't because they've decided to leave because the government hasn't given us ample support. It's really scary. It depends on who you are as a person. I'm really not motivated or enthused to do anything. It's just been raining in Glasgow for the past 40 hours. Um, I think to get perspective, I need to kind of travel a little bit more. But saying that, I sing mostly traditional stuff, so I can just look at the collections and like whatever. But I just don't feel enthused. What I mean, in terms of like a business perspective, like when am I going to be able to tour that album? Will it have as good of a launch if I'm launching it virtually from my home? Mm. You know, an album tour at the end of creating a body of work, you really want to be able to tour it and take it to different countries and see how it goes and. You know, I think that without that, I don't know if my thing would, if it would even have success because so much of what I do is live performance. I'm really lucky that after uni or even during uni, I really toured. That was my main income was performance. Um, I don't judge people that don't have that because some people like to have some of their income from teaching, some from performance um, whatnot. And they do lots of different things. They have a more of a portfolio career. But for me, it was mostly performance and touring. So, so I mean, I know that the charities like the Music Venue Trust have uh, worked hard to get government to, to hand money down to many of the grassroots mm-hmm. music venues. But as an artist, what would you like the government to do to help you? Well, I think 
that the money that was the package that was announced a few weeks ago um, I'm not quite sure how far that will trickle down if it'll trickle down to like individual creatives I use that word because I actually like that word however it might help the venues that's cool but when they described it in a press release as helping the crown jewels I thought great so Royal Albert, like the Royal Albert, Albert Hall will get something that you know big theatres will get something but what about the small grassroots venue but because it has been devolved which is good um it means that scottish government can decide what it does with it which is terrific and culture secretary fiona hislop um, announced that it would be going to grassroots venues so that's great i have full confidence in the scottish government that it will help people and they already you know creative scotland had like a bridging bursary thing where individuals could apply and that was rolled out March, maybe April at the latest, really good, really quick response from Creative Scotland. Um, and then I think I think that was emulated um, in the other arts councils. But I got more from you know Creative Scotland than I have from the UK government since lockdown began. Um, so I don't I don't know. It depends because you don't want it just to go to like the big players. You want it to go to the small places too. But um, but yeah, I think it's no, that's fair enough. I mean, I have absolute I have absolute faith in in the UK government to completely ignore the grassroots music venues. Yeah. Um, so um, I'm sure they won't let me down in that one. Right. A couple of questions I've missed from this list. So they're going to have, we're going to have to do two questions and a quick fire answer, if I may. What sound or noise do you love? Okay. Um, so okay, this isn't quick. I'm so sorry. Um, myself, Aidan Moody and Charlie Gray uh, tour a lot together in the car and we're always like listening to podcasts or like viral YouTube videos and we found this video called The Noise and it was this like guy I think from America and he was displaying what he can do with his vocal cords and people are, <laughs> I mean it goes like this, people think that this is like a telephone ringing but I just like to call it The Noise. And it's like this horrible high piercing noise that they can do and it's like yeah, it's like that, but really loud. <laughs> and I just love it because I can almost do it. Depends how I am, but it just like annoys everyone else. So I love that noise. I love the fact that you love it, knowing that it annoys everyone else as well. What um, what sound or noise do you hate? Um, hmm. Hmm. Some music. <laughs> Go on. Um, no, I don't. I don't. So if you I... could banish something to Room One Hundred One musically. What yeah, would it be? Dubstep. Like right. that's getting that absolute bin. Um I used to, you know, I like most music, you know, musical theatre, like a bit classical, tiny bit of classical. I like, you know Your words said you like classical, but your face didn't. Yeah, no, little bits. In very, very <laughs> small bits. Um I like country, I like most things, punk, pop punk, classic rock bit of metal but dubstep can absolutely unequivocally get in the bin that i don't like voice. Um, fair enough uh, which leads us with our final question before we have a, a second performance from you um if heaven exists what would you like to hear god say when you arrive at the pearly gates that was a good ballad you can come in <laughs> oh so have you got to stand there and perform before the gates are opened yeah yeah something like uh you know like halloween when you go and do your party trick and then they give you sweets and then that's it something, something like that like if you can do a good version of tamlin you're into heaven okay there you go you just better um, hope god isn't part of the folk police then yeah 
So, um, a second ballad from you, if, if we will, please. What are you going to go for this time? Yeah, I, th- oh, um, I think I'll, because this is at the top of my head, I was meaning to say the last ballad really has a bit of brutality towards women in it. And that seems to me a, a huge, huge theme in the Scottish ballad canon is that a lot of women are, there's some some ballads where women are heroes in it and they're like, the, yes, power. But a lot of the ballads, they're kind of the, the person who's being, you know, cheated on or killed or, you know, it's really, brutality towards women is really prevalent in ballads. Is that because um ballads were traditionally and and i'm not saying they're wrong this question may well come out wrong and i don't mean it to but because women were telling the stories more than men so they wanted these stories to be told uh, or is it you know also just a sign of the times as as well i think it's certainly saying i'm trying to find it sounds like i'm trying to find an excuse for it i'm not i'm generally trying to understand the root of it no um well this particular ballad was like the most recorded ballad by female source singers in the 20th century because it shared the message of the abuse that this woman had. So this ballad is called Andrew Lamy or Mill of Tiftizani, and it's been sung by lots and lots of source singers in Aberdeenshire, like Jeannie Robertson and Lizzie Higgins and Belle Duncan, and it's been collected, you know, several, several times. But the fact that it's the most popular um, sung ballad by 20th century source singers just proves the importance of the message and the fact that um, it was a true story that you can pinpoint back to dates. So this woman called Agnes Smith, she grew up in Fivey. Her father was like the mill worker and she fell in love with Andrew Lamy. I mean, Martin Simpson's done a great recording of this ballad. Absolutely wonderful. Um, but she falls in love with the wrong guy and her family lock her in a room and beat her to death. And it's like an honour killing almost. Um, but that was in six, it was like 1673 in January, 1673. And, you know, fast forward to the 20th century and lots and lots of source singers, traveller singers, whose songs have been handed down by generation, are still singing it because they stand in solidarity with the woman. And even now, I mean, I sing it because I think it's a really great message to still continue to sing. Uh, Kind of, I feel like ballads are a little bit different because some of them are so old. I feel like it's almost, some of them function as a warning. Some of them function as like to raise awareness of a message. I wouldn't say like they're outwardly protest songs, but they're maybe a a type of protest song. um, Because this song certainly protests the fact that this woman has has been killed because she fell in love with the wrong guy. But we hear this story all the time in folk song but we don't necessarily get to pinpoint it to the true people who lived all the time. Uh, so I think that's why this one's so popular. Um, it's been sung by a lot of people, uh, a lot of great versions. So it's called Mill of Tifties, Annie. And I think you age five years every time you listen to this. So I certainly age five years every time I sing it. So I'll try and make it short. At Mill of there a man in the neighbourhood of Ivy, he had a bonny daughter fair, and her name was Bonnie Annie. Her skin was like the spring and blue that greets the rosy morning, and her innocence and graceful mien. Her beauteous face adorning. Lord Fivey had a trumpeter. His name was Andrew Lamy. 
and he had the eyes to win the hair. Oh, Neville Terry's a honey. Lord, by me, he read by the door. Far to that sweet Terry's a honey, and his trumpeter wrote him a board, and his name was Andralani. Her mother cried her to the door. Come here to me, my Annie. Did you ever see sick a bonny loon than the trumpeter of Ivy? Nathan, she said, with science, was a lass for bonny Annie. For she durst not on that her hair was won by the trumpeter of Ivy. And the first time that this couple met, t'was in the woods so by me, and his handsome face and his fluttering gun, seen one hair to a honey, but her feather come to hear this, and her letter notes defy me, to tell her stuff had been bewitched by his servant and me. When Fivey had the letter read, he called for Andralami. Pray tell me, Fethers, as ye think, Mellow Tethys, a honey. In wicked it I played me pair, nor thought the injured on for it's on his glove that's on the hill. Oh, Mellow Tethys. He's a honey, but to Edinburgh he was sent. He broke his tie, we honey, for the thought that she would soon forget her love for Andralami. And the first time that Lord Wybie passed, he caught a sect of honey, saying, If he come, oh, higher kin. I would make you my lady, says she, your lands are far and wide, and they are wondrous funny, but I would not leave my dear lad, for all the lands of Ivy, and then her father bet her wondrous sword, and also dead her mother. Her sisters also took their school, but we be tear her breather, for her breather better wonder sore. We curl strokes and money, and he's broke her back across the steam, all for loving and me. Oh, mother, mother, mark my bed. And they my face defy thee, for it's a lie until I'll die, oh, for loving and me. New people here be far and near, they pity Tethys Annie, but I died for love in one pillar. Wow, sorry, dramatic pause while I took myself off mute for that one. 
in case a child walked in mid-song or something. That was uh, that was beautiful. How do you how did you find when you're performing in this? And you know, you don't get that applause at the end. That that response that um, from from an audience, apart from a solitary clap in this case. Yeah, I think it's really difficult because the whole like the first time I did uh, like a live stream, I was like, oh, this feels so weird. But I think the more you accept it, that it's going to be weird. That this is what you kind of have to do right now. The more you make peace with it. But you certainly yearn for um, a public live gig. And I think I I'm going to Germany, or I should be going to Germany in a week's time to do a show outside, two shows outside. Um, and I'm really looking forward to that because pretty much every other bit of work this year has been cancelled. This is my first gig since March. And um, I only got told a few weeks ago it was still going on. Um, so book your flights, come over um, as a trio gig. And I'm really looking forward to just being in a room with, with people. Um, mm. Well, not in a room, in an outdoor tent, whatever. I hope it doesn't rain. But I think that, that connection is vital. And I know a lot of people have said, I'm not live streaming because I need the connection. But when it's like basically pay rent or not i would rather kind of do a live stream and make it as connected as possible by commenting on you know doing the comments and like doing q a's throughout the stream and actually it's you're probably connecting more with the audience because you're looking at what they're saying all the time whereas in in, in ways whereas in a gig you know there's not that kind of q a we have a, a bit of crack on the live streams like i think we had there was one live stream where like I was talking about batteries and we had like a 20 minute just like back and forth about about this delicate like this delicacy called batteries from Aberdeen and it's I think it, you know what at the end of the day I'm just making the most of what I can have and I understand if other artists are completely in aversion to that that's fine that's you this is me I'm happy doing live streams because it kind of it gets me some income um but also I enjoy it like it's not that I dread it I actually enjoy doing it gives me something to get out of bed for. So, mm. yeah, uh, tell me more about the delicacy. Yes. So butteries are like, oh, so difficult to describe. People call them rowies or butteries and you only get them in the northeast of Scotland. However, the Scottish kitchen at King's Cross London gets them daily on a train from Aberdeen. But they're like, how do you describe it? They're like salty, crusty, kind of, not like a bat, not like a, or roll. I don't know what the English is for this. Um, but they're just like, you can put jam on them or whatever. Some bougie people put avocado on them. That's mad. Don't put avocado on them. Don't put chocolate spread on them. They're just like crispy. You can heat them up. They're really nice. Just type in buttery or rowie, R-O-W-I-E, and you'll see what they look like. They're absolutely great so unhealthy for you unbelievably unhealthy you already know me so well because you know full well that's exactly what i'm going to do the minute this call has um, has ended which is sadly uh, we're almost at um i just had one question which intrigued me you, you're obviously very um it seems like your favorite instrument is your voice above all else so when you write music do you consider the instrument that's going to complement it or do you write for your voice first and then add it on afterwards or, or is it something else yeah, well, I studied piano as well. So I have like grade six piano, um, grade seven piano, actually. And then I studied piano at uni. So when I try to write, I will write and do the chords on piano. And then I'll try and give the chords to like guitarists. So we're not just, you know, when we're arranging, it's not just me singing at them. They can like see the chord chart and be like, oh, well, we can maybe change this and change that. So they've got something to work with. So when I write, I use piano. Um, but it depends on if it's a ballad or if it's like a kind of, contemporary folk song 
it really depends. But um, but yeah, piano's great to great to play on. So I really really enjoy it. Fair enough. Uh, Baltic Street's your most recent release that happened just before the lockdown. Is that because it was preceding a forthcoming album that we haven't yet listened to, or was that just a song that you had recorded and thought now's a good time? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, last year I recorded Bonnie Lassa Fivey and Baltic Street at the same time um, just so that I could release them in 2020 because I was I didn't tour for December, January and most of February because of knee surgery so I thought well if I release some music then you know I'm not doing nothing um, so I released it and it was fine but I totally I was in the middle of flitting flats I totally forgot that it was even coming out so I really didn't I didn't put it forward as much as I should have. But there's always that fear of like, you know, a few years ago I got my tonsils out and I couldn't sing for a few months. Well, one and a bit months, I took on work that I shouldn't have and I really damaged my voice. But there's always that fear of like remaining relevant. But also I don't want to churn out stuff all the time. Like I Mm -hmm. want what I do to be meaningful. I mean, there's some people who manage to do like an album a year. I'm like, I don't know if I've got as much to say. I don't have enough, don't have enough in my brain to like do an album a year. So I'd rather just wait and like kind of see where I'm going as a person and as an artist rather than be like album, album, year, year. Like for me, that's not helpful. So I am quite happy just to sit on whatever I'm sitting. I don't have anything that I'm sitting on. I just have nothing that I've done um, apart from uh, live streams. So I'm trying to write right now. Um, well, thank you. I mean, you've, you've released quite a bit of material in the, the, the few years that uh, you've been recording anyway. So um, hopefully it won't be too long before we hear some, some more from you. Anyone listening uh, wants to find out a bit more about you, where should they go? Google. No, I'm joking. Um, <laughs> yeah, of course. True. <laughs> uh, probably my website, although I really don't update that enough. So like my Facebook, my Twitter, my Instagram, like I'm on those daily speaking rubbish um so yeah probably social media um, and your patreon as well of course yeah and patreon which is which is well cool um so yeah or you could just use google because apparently everything about me is on google so you can just you can just do that i hate google so you know what just one last thing i think i grew up with social media so you can probably see my development as a human and as an artist from when i'm like 12 onwards um it's really scary but also enlightening enlightening so yeah there you go yeah imagine what that's going to be like then when you add another 20 30 years on top of that as well it'll all be there i'll look back and be like oh there in the next phone lines (laughs) (laughs) it's been um uh, a genuine pleasure um and a privilege to to have this time with you Iona. thank you so much uh for uh, agreeing to do this and um for your beautiful singing and for your many stories too it's been a delight well thanks so much for having me it's been lovely uh, Iona Fife thank you very much <laughs> <laughs>